From the US to Europe, an international podcast breaking down structured credit one tranche at a time. Welcome to The Last Tranche, Credit Flux's bi-monthly podcast discussing CLOs and all things structured credit. I am your host and reporter with Credit Flux, Hugh Minch. Hello and welcome to The Last Tranche. My name is Hugh Minch and I'm a reporter with Credit Flux and today I'm joined by Seth Painter. Seth is Managing Director of Structured Products at Antares Capital in New York. Seth, thank you for joining and welcome to The Last Tranche. Thank you, Hugh. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. So I'm going to talk about middle market CLOs shortly, but I wanted to start with kind of a, a broad overview of private credit itself. Uh, what's your analysis of where things are in the market in summer 2021? As you know, Hugh, it's it's certainly a, a market that has been getting a lot of attention from obviously folks like yourself in the media. You know, it's also um, obviously you you know the, the the market's been getting a lot of attention as evidenced by the amount of capital that's been raised for the space in recent years. You know, it's certainly become, I would say, a more competitive market as as more firms have come into the to the space in, in recent years. And you know, a question that we often get from from our investors Hugh, is you know w- with the increased competition with all of this capital that that's been raised is, is this still an attractive you know asset class or is this market oversaturated of course there's been a lot of capital raised for private credit as i mentioned uh, new firms coming into the space there are you know larger firms that were historically you know in, in the bsl market that are now you know coming into the direct lending space but I would say, yeah, that there's been a, a tremendous amount of capital raised for private credit, but it's still a fraction of, of the private equity capital that's been raised in recent years. And just to put some numbers around that, I was I was actually looking at this just before we hopped on, Hugh. But there's there's been about there's about 230 billion of private debt dry powder currently, and and compare that to more than 1.1 trillion of of private equity dry powder, and then. For direct lending specifically, there's around 90 billion of dry powder, and compare that versus private equity buyout capital of, of about 580 billion. So, again, yes, there's been a tremendous amount of fundraising in this space more recently, but we think it's still you know a very manageable amount relative to the amount of private equity capital out there. And then, of course. You know, the next question is, okay, so there, there's been a lot of fundraising in, in, in private markets. Can it all be deployed? And, you know, we, you know, we, we look at the data and, and suggest that, it, yes, it can be. We actually think there's still, you know, a lot of, a lot of runway. Um, you know, I saw data this morning that suggests there's, there's 9,000 or so private equity owned businesses in the U.S. today, which is, which is actually only, only 4% of the total population of, of you know, 230,000 or so middle market companies out there. So again, you know, we think there's still a lot of opportunities and targets for, for private capital. The other thing, Hugh, and I'm sure you've seen this before, but the the demographics can contribute to, to growth in this market as well. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this and talked about it, but the uh, the bulk of, of, uh, of baby boomers expected to hit retirement age by 2029. You know, many of these folks are, are business owners and they expect to transition ownership of, of their business in the next five to 10 years. So again, we think there's still a lot of room to grow for private capital. You know, all that said, we of course, you know, see, you know, increased competition in our space and, and, you know, the, the impact that increased competition can have on terms, 
you know, cer certainly more recently, spreads have been under a little bit of pressure. But even with that, you know, spread contraction, we think, you know, the, the yield premium over BSL is, is still attractive to us, you know, at 100 to 150 basis points premium. And we think the the risk adjusted returns remain you know very strong relative to other asset classes but again it's a, it's a competitive market and you know we do think performance will vary over time across lenders in the space we think there's really a few key differentiating capabilities that will ultimately drive performance we think it's critical in this space to have you know, strong relationships with the with the sponsor community. Those relationships will allow you to see higher deal flow, which in turn allows you to be more selective when picking credits. Those same relationships with the sponsors are important to to get lead arranger role, which is also critical to us. That lead role allows you, you know, direct access to the sponsor and, and to the to the company. It also allows you to drive terms. And then thirdly, we think it's we think it's critical and, and an important part of our success to have a large existing portfolio. Being the incumbent on deals gives us, you know, what we think is a competitive advantage uh, on deal flow because we're you know we're seeing a lot of activity out of our own portfolio on credits and businesses that we know really well. And just to put that into a little bit of context, Hugh, for the past three, four years or so, about 75% or closer to 80% actually of our deal activity has been generated from existing portfolio companies. So again, this is this is really critical for our deal flow. And again, ultimately allows us to, you know, remain, you know, very selective when when choosing credits. So that's sort of how we've been navigating the the more competitive landscape that you know that we've all we've all read and talked about it's interesting uh point you made there about um fundraising i know the, the the kind of turn towards private credit from uh institution investors has been sort of building over several years but you know recently i was speaking to some multi-strap fund managers telling me that you know, as the u.s economy reopens that sort of that trend has accelerated is that something you recognize? What do you think is driving that trend? The trend from, from more institutional investors coming into private credit? Well, I think investors have come to the same realization that that we that you know we we came to and and sort of validating our our original thesis in the space. We think that the asset class has again proven to be very resilient. And I'm sure we'll we'll get into it in a bit, but you know, we we can talk about our experience over the past year and a half or so. But again, we think that the credit performance has been quite strong relative to BSL and other asset classes. And, and really the, the premium that you see in private credit versus you know larger cap BSL deals is really driven by just the liquidity premium. And for certain institutional investors, i.e. the pension community, the insurance community, who are largely buy and hold investors. They like flipping that liquidity premium for credit that's otherwise gonna perform in line with the other markets. Let's go back to 2020, because of course the COVID crisis was the first real stress test of um, of direct lending as an asset class. I mean, that was something that used to come up a lot, especially when I spoke to um, CLO managers back in 2019 before the pandemic. What are some of the big takeaways from that period? How did the market perform? You know, I would say the first thing that we really observed in, in 2020 as part of, of COVID was in our revolver portfolio. 
you know, typically the utilization rate on our revolver portfolio hovers around 20% or so. In March, late March, early April last year, we saw the utilization rate spike from 20 to 65% uh, over the course of two weeks or so. Now, some of these businesses had real liquidity needs, but the vast majority of, of the companies drawing on their revolver were doing so out of an abundance of caution. You'll recall there was a lot of uncertainty at the time. So um, there was uncertainty of if um, you know direct lenders could could fund those revolvers and uncertainty around you know when those businesses would need liquidity later. So they opted to borrow on their revolvers early on. You know, we had plenty of liquidity to to fund our revolver book. And now the the utilization rate of, of our revolver portfolio has has normalized back to the low 20% range or so. But yeah, that was sort of the first observation that we had in, in early 2020. And then Q2, you know, the market was effectively closed. So we were, and I'm sure, you know, our, our peers in the space were, you know, doing the same. We were in portfolio management mode. We flexed our restructuring team to 20 people, all of which are, you know, seasoned restructuring and, and credit professionals. We were working with our sponsors to provide additional liquidity. And in certain cases, we were able to provide, you know, covenant relief in exchange for equity support from those sponsors as they were looking to pivot their business models and, and optimize capital in their cost structures. And that has worked out well. Most of these businesses are performing well at this point. So moving on to, to Q3, Q4, you know, we had the benefit of a bit more visibility into the impact of, of work from home and more visibility into which sectors and which businesses would be most affected. So with that, you know, with more certainty around these things, the market came back really quickly. In fact, Q4 was a record quarter for us in, in our 25 year history. We originated around nine and a half billion in Q4 alone. And so, you know, we view the past year and a half or so as, as just a, a stress test of the private credit asset class. Liquidity was tested as we talked about. Relationships were certainly tested. Business continuity plans were tested. And ultimately, we think the asset class fared really well and has, uh, you know, once again, proven to be very resilient. But I think it's time we talked about middle market CLOs. I think it's fair to say even the broadly syndicated CLO investor universe is fairly small. Middle market CLOs then being a, sub, a subset of that universe, I'd imagine it's even clubbier. Would you agree with that assessment? And do you see things starting to to move on that on that front? Is there is there new demand? Yeah, I'd say we've seen the middle market CLO investor base evolve quite a bit since we issued our first deal in in 2017. You know, similar to what you're seeing in in private credit, you know, investors are continuing to look for yield. I think they look at middle market CLOs and they see that these deals have performed well. Last year was a good, you know, test for for middle market CLOs as well. I think investors also see that more information, more data and transparency is becoming available. A lot of thanks to, you know, folks at, you know, Credit Flux for for helping on, on that, just providing more information and more, you know, more more data around the asset class. So I think, you know, we'll, we're seeing more and more CLO investors getting comfortable with the credit. And for those investors who are more 
buy and hold. I think they like the premium they can pick up in middle market CLOs. I think, you know, again, they've reached the same conclusion as us in that this is really, you know, a liquidity premium. You're getting paid, you know, 30 to 50 basis points extra on AAAs in middle market CLOs that have, you know, meaningfully higher par subordination levels. So I think, you know, they, they certainly like picking up that additional yield with, you know, higher par subordination. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of investors who were historically only in only active in the BSL market. A lot of those investors have started to participate in middle market CLOs. And again, it's it's a lot of, you know, the insurance companies, pensions, we've seen more activity from from regional banks. And then in terms of geography, you know, we have a pretty diverse investor base. Clearly, we have a number of North American investors also have investors out of Asia and um, many European investors as, as well. Again, I think people have have been able to observe the strong performance on the credit side and they are viewing the premium as simply a liquidity premium and they find that attractive. All is to say we have seen a meaningful number of accounts that have transitioned from historically only being in BSL to now investing in BSL and middle market. So you're seeing a lot of new issue middle market CLOs that are much more syndicated. You know, just for some context, you know, our, our past couple of deals, you know, we've had, you know, pr pretty syndicated uh, investor books. So there's been a lot of new accounts that have come into the space in the last three to four years. Yeah. And Kevin, I mean, this is something I, I discussed on my most um, recent podcast, but um, yeah, there, there is a there is still this perception in the investor community that CLOs are, you know, somehow, you know, a successor of pre-financial crisis CDOs. Is that something that you like encounter when you're trying to sell these products to uh, new investors? Less so these days, Hugh. I think we're far enough removed from the financial crisis where there's enough information and enough performance information available where the investor community can see how well CLOs have performed. So I, I think, you know, I think there's less concern around the contagion effect that we saw back in, in 08 and 09 as it relates to, to the CDO market. I think people uh, and, and investors fully understand, you know, the differences in the underlying collateral versus, you know, some of the, the CDOs that didn't uh, perform quite as well. I wanted to ask you about equity too, because unlike broadly syndicated CLOs, most middle market CLOs retain equity in their own deals. Although I'm aware of a few recent transactions where you know, there was a minority stake sold, but do you sort of see this as a way that the middle market CLO landscape could develop if equity becomes syndicated? I do. I think, you know, you're absolutely right in your observation. You know, most middle market CLOs, the managers is typically retaining the equity. That's the case for, for our deals as well. Certainly there is, you know, strong demand for middle market CLO equity. I think that could only lead to, you know, further growth in, in the market. And I think it's really going to, you know, vary by manager and how they want to, you know, raise equity and, and whether they whether they want to syndicate that equity. But certainly um, I agree with you that that's another way that the market could continue to grow. So let's talk about your approach to CLO management at Antares. You've got um, nine deals under management, I believe. How would you define your approach to managing those? Uh, those vehicles. Yeah, I mean, as we just talked about, you know, we 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 retain the equity in our deals. So really these these are financing trades for us, Hugh. So, 
we are simply looking to structure our CLOs to have sufficient flexibility so that we can continue to originate loans that fit the profile that we like. Our CLOs are really meant to reflect our broader strategy. So we have a portfolio of more than 450 obligors, Hugh, and that level of diversity sort of translates into our CLOs. You know, most of our CLOs are going to have less than 1% position sizes, typically between 100 and 150 50 names. If we think about the diversity metric, the diversity score for Moody's, it's probably you know 60 to 65, which as you know, is similar to what a BSL CLO diversity score would look like. I would say that's pretty differentiating for us and, and pretty unique to our CLO platform. Again, our CLOs are, are, are meant to structure, you know, to, around our pipeline. So we're, we're almost exclusively first lean. That's going to be also be reflected in, in our CLOs. And then as you probably have observed, we've done, you know, some larger transactions, which we find to be, you know, efficient. I was going to ask about the, yeah, I think anyone who looks at Antares on CLOI will probably see that, yeah, the deals are significantly larger than the market average. And the 2017 one deal is, I think, the largest one that we have on that database is the 2.29 billion. Could you tell us a bit about the process of syndicating the debt of such a big transaction? Well, it's similar to how we have relationships on the loan side. You know, we have key relationships from our investor community. So those were relationships that we have had for a number of years and proved critical when looking to do such a large CLO. It's a fairly, you know, syndicated transaction, but again, it's those are those are all key partnerships uh, in in that transaction and in others. Let's talk a little bit more about the assets within the portfolio now. How how do you see um, where are we in terms of pricing, uh, you know, relative to pre-COVID 2019 levels? Yeah, I would say it can be a little bit tricky or or misleading to to sort of just look at, you know pricing or, or spreads in, in, a, in a vacuum. So we look at it on a on a relative basis and we look at the spread to leverage ratio. And generally when we when we evaluate that spread to leverage ratio, you know, we, we think we're we're probably at or near pre-COVID levels down from some of the highs that that we saw in, in the second half of, of last year. So again, the market has, has, has certainly returned to at or, or near pre-COVID levels. And another thing that we're seeing a lot more of is that uni tranches have become more popular structure. That's another of those trends that sort of been going on for a long time, but has also accelerated. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why you think um, those have grown in popularity? Absolutely. You're right. We've, we've certainly made that same observation. You know, Unitranch continues to be very prevalent in the market. You know, I think sponsors like the certainty and the, the speed of a Unitranch execution versus having you know, two capital markets exercises for the for the first lien and the second lien. So again, it's really allowed them to just have more certainty of execution and, and a quicker process overall. Um, so we can we've we've seen that product continue to to be um, popular with 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 sponsors. Another trend um, that that we've sort of seen this year, Hugh, is with delay draw term loans. Those continue to be in demand from sponsors. You know, sponsors view them as as pretty efficient financing sources as you know they can they can draw on those DDTLs to to fund 
add-on acquisitions in the future. And then the other sort of trend that you know we've observed over the past you know couple of years is with respect to hold size. As we've talked about a couple of times, you know, there's been a lot of capital raised in the space, and and lenders are lenders have the ability to speak to to larger and larger holds, and that ability to to hold a um, you know a sizable piece of the facility is is an important consideration for sponsors as they're looking to mandate deals. So yes, Unitronch has been a theme for the past few years. I think we've seen that. You know, even further accelerate this this year, but there's other trends, you know, such as the the DDTL and the hold size that that we've observed as well. Um, if we could just uh, talk about some specific sectors, obviously there are those COVID industries, what what everyone calls COVID industries, airlines, hotels. How are those credits doing now that the economy is open again? We don't have a tremendous amount of exposure to those sectors. We have seen certain credits within those sectors bounce back. Some of the credits in those industries will have a a more prolonged recovery, but we are quite confident in the prospects of each of each of the credits within those portfolios. Again, we don't have a tremendous amount of exposure exposure there, Hugh. So I suppose the flip side of that then is the COVID uh, COVID bump industries, you know, things like e-commerce, certain kinds of cars, you know, things that had a things that had a, a benefit from shutdowns and et cetera. Um, I'm hearing that now that, you know, now that those companies are trying to refinance themselves and they've got an, a sort of enlarged EBITDA, a lot of people are sort of, you know, sh- struggling to do the valuations. Uh, what's your what's your view on those COVID bump companies? Great question. Certainly, you know, a lot of e-commerce, SaaS businesses, actually benefited from from people remaining at home. I think, you know, you've probably seen more software deals getting done in the second half of last year and early this year. As far as how we would approach the the valuations there, I think, you know, we would approach it like we do for any other business. I mean, we're, we're underwriting what we think is the appropriate EBITDA. Of course, this is going to involve evaluating you know how much of their revenues this past year we think are sustainable how sticky is that revenue i.e is it contractual and then we'll give it credit and discount it where we think appropriate not dissimilar to how we approach other sectors or other businesses seth thank you very much for joining us on the last tranche today really appreciate it thank you hugh thank you for listening to the last tranche If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Credit Flux and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like and share our content.